I want to invite you with that said, invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Believe it or not, today is the last day in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. I think we've been in it for over a year. We've obviously taken breaks, uh, but we are finally coming to the last chapter of the book of Samuel. And here in chapter 24, the last four chapters actually are not written in chronological order. These last four chapters actually are more like an epilogue. It sort of takes David's moments in his life and puts this epilogue together to be able to survey and remember the life of David and really actually the kingdom of God through David's life. And so I want you to remember that as we come here because this doesn't finish maybe the way you would think it should finish. It doesn't bring the closure that you might think it should bring us like it did in 1 Samuel, right? Because in 1 Samuel, we saw that King Saul dies. And there's some closure to that. But here, we sort of have left maybe wanting more. And I'll look at that a little more after we read this passage. So I'm going to start in verse, 9, verse 10. Verse 10, and then we'll read to the end of this book. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the, among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that they that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, Thus the Lord your God accepts you. But the king said to Arunah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not 
offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, and we ask that as we come to the end of the book of Samuel, both first and second, Lord, I know that a lot has been spoken. We've heard from your word and the gospel of the good news of Jesus through this Old Testament story. So, Lord, I pray that whatever has been spoken, even as we hear from you this morning, Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts so that we might remember not the great things of man and humanity, but the great deeds of you, our God, our Yahweh, who is merciful and great. So do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look into this story, I want to ask you a question. Has there ever been a movie or maybe a TV series where it finally came to an end, it went to, it faded to black, and the credits started rolling, and you went, what? That's it? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that in your life, right? I mean, almost all of us have. I'm sure all of us have, unless you're this great movie critic or a TV screenwriter. It's interesting, like I think of my wife, we, one show that we actually could watch together was this TV show called This Is Us. And we had followed it religiously for six long seasons. And it's a beautiful story of this family. But when the screen faded to black and the credits started rolling, my wife was like, what? That's it? For me, the most recent film that uh, did that for me was actually Minari, which is a written by um, or directed by Lee Isaac Chung. And it's basically this semi-autobiographical film about this Korean-American immigrant family that moves his, moves his family from L.A. to the middle of Arkansas to raise a farm and be able to live off of their products that they sell or produce that they sell. Well, through a litany of events, tragic, tragic but also through the highs and joys of life, This film ends with the father and son in a forest with this plant. It's called, Minari is a plant. In this forest with all of these Minari plants growing in the forest, and it fades to black. And I'm like, what? That's it? And I feel like this story here is how I felt after reading it. Like, that's it? In the film, uh, Minari, I had to go research why does this film end this way. And why it ends this way is because of this actual symbolic aspect of this plant, Minari. It offers hope to a family destitute where so much tragedy has come upon them, not only with their farm, but also their marriage. This plant symbolizes sustenance. It symbolizes the ability to continue on even through hardship because this plant doesn't grow well in the first year. It actually grows better in the second, third, and fourth years. And so as this film, Face of Black, looking at this Minari plant in the forest, it tells us that though this family is going through hardship, there's actually hope for them symbolically, but also through this plant that is growing so well in the forest that they can actually use this plant to be able to grow and continue to thrive as a family in America. Now, here in this story, 
I am left going, why does it end like this? If you were to ask King David, what would your last story be in the book of Samuel? He would never choose this story because of his failure. Maybe in the middle of 2 Samuel, but why here? Well, as we'll look at this story, this is the perfect ending to the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Because though it, it, though it ends in this mundane way with no closure, it actually offers the hope that not only the people of Israel need, but we need as well as we read into this story. We're going to do this in three ways briefly. We're going to look at David the sinner, David the repentant, and lastly, David the forgiven. So let's follow along with me in this story. I'm sure some of you got lost and going, what's going on in the story? But read in verse 10 what happens. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Now here's what's interesting. Why is he struck in the heart? Well, he goes on to say, David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Well, what is the sin that David has done? Well, it's actually in the first nine verses that we didn't read. But David takes this military census. And he takes this census wanting to count how many people are in his army. Now, Joab, his general and commander, we looked at this last week and in previous weeks, Joab knows that this is a sin. Now, we're not told why, but Joab says, why would you do such a thing? Because this is a sin against the Lord. But David disregards his commander. And he decides to count. And it takes about nine and a half months for his commanders to go out all throughout Israel to count how many men are in his army. And it, counts, it comes up to 1.3 million people in his army. Now scholars debate why, what this sin was. Some say, well, there's this tax that David was supposed to pay to conduct this census. And there's no description here of him paying that tax, so maybe that's why there's a sin here. Others will say, well, the, the sin isn't so much because of the taxes, but because of his failure to trust in God's provision for all of his needs, right? We know some of us might be familiar with Psalm 20, where we read some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And David failed to trust in Yahweh for all of his needs, military, home, food, economically. Now, here's the thing. We don't know why. Scholars can conjecture, I can maybe guess, yes, this is probably why he did not put his trust fully in Yahweh. But we're not given the reason why. But all we know is that David defies the warning from his general Joab. But more importantly, he defies God himself. And this is where I want us to remember throughout the book of First and Second Samuel. We are reminded of the sin of these men in this book. David once again fails to trust and put his, all of his hope in God, his Savior. Over and over again, we are presented with a man who fails to represent God's character and his heart. Right? This was what David was supposed to be. He was supposed to be God's representative. The king, not like all the other nations but to be able to represent who God is and his kingdom. And once again, at the end of this book, David sins, and he sins miserably. 
What I'm reminded for us here is that we are not to put our hope not only in David, but in any man or woman. Starting from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets to the priests to the judges. You know what the purpose of all the Old Testament people were? It's to remind us that we cannot put our hope in them because they will fail us over and over and over again. Even the king of Israel. Even your pastor. Even your elders and your deacons and your staff. Even politicians, athletes. Even in institutions made up of men and women. Where do you put your hope in this morning? I think there's some grace in that. Because what we realize is that people will always fail us. Fathers will fail their children. And your children will fail you as parents. Friends will disappoint you. And here we're reminded in the worldview of Scripture and of the God we worship, men and women will continuously fail us. I'm reminded of, at least for me on Father's Day, Paul Tripp, who writes, why, am I so, why are we so surprised when our children mess up? They're sinners. And I have to tell myself that over and over again. Even this past week, our two older children were gone on the mission trip, and my wife and I were like, oh, this is awesome. Our little one is the only one with us, and she is so nice. She never does anything wrong, and yet this week we were screaming at her. <laughs> Even the youngest, cutest one fails us. But here we're reminded, David... At the end of this story, he fails his people and he fails his Lord. Where do we put our trust? And it's a great reminder for us this morning to be able to ask ourselves, where do you put your hope in? But that takes us from David the sinner to David the repentant. Because look at what he says at the latter half of verse 10. I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David says his heart, or the writer says David's heart was struck. He was convicted of his sin, and he confesses, and he repents. This is the mercy of God for David and for us. <coughs> have you ever been struck in the heart? when you mess up against your spouse or a friend or your parent or your child. And in that moment, the Spirit reminds you of what you have done and you repent. And David does that here. But here's what I want us to remember. The last time David said, I have sinned, do you know when that was? It was when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. When he slept with Bathsheba and he killed and murdered Uriah. But do you know what provoked him to say, I have sinned? It was when the prophet Nathan came and told him, you have sinned, right? But here, we see the, matur the maturation of David. We see the growth in David here because there is no prompting. There is no prophet. There is no one that comes to him that says you have sinned. But for the first time we see at the end of this book, we see David grow as a man who does not need to be prompted or called out, but within his own heart, by the Spirit and the mercy of God, he is enabled to recognize his sin and he repents. He acknowledges his brokenness. He acknowledges his wrongs. And he actually asks for God to forgive him. 
He has done wrong. I have sinned. And he's able to respond to his sin and ask the Lord to forgive him. You see, over and over again throughout this book, what we have tried to convey to you here through the book of Samuel is that it's not about perfection. It's not about not making mistakes. Rather, it's about how we respond to our sin and rebellion against God and others. Are we filled with pride and self-sufficiency like Saul? Or do we have humility and dependence upon God, recognizing that we cannot do this on our own? David here exhibits what Saul never could, a life of repentance. And you've heard that from the pulpit. It's a life of faith and repentance, faith and repentance over and over and over again. Do we live that kind of humility to recognize our sin and to be able to respond with humility and say, I have done foolishly. I have sinned. (coughs) And David is able to do that by the grace of God. He grows. He's growing. And he's able to recognize his sin and repent. But here's why I think another reason he's able to repent is he understands the greatness of God's mercy. He understands the greatness of God's mercy. You see, with being repentant doesn't mean that everything is hunky-dory and everything's just, life is grand. There's consequences to sin, and we've seen that over the last few weeks, right? We've seen the ways that the consequence of sin is actually detrimental, now what happens here is Gad, this man, comes, the seer for David, comes and gives, God gives him three options, David. He says, because of your great sin, you can choose three options. Three years of famine, three months of enemies coming after you and fleeing, or three days of pestilence. And what is David's response? Look at verse 14. David says, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. You see, the reason David is able to repent is, I think, because he understands the great mercy of his God. Yes, there's punishment, and the wrath of God needs to be met. But even in punishment, something great like this, whatever three choices he chooses, He understands that God's mercy is great. I have a good buddy of mine who I grew up together with, and his dad was militant, and he was very strict. And so anytime he got in trouble, his dad would take out the belt. I mean, we're talking about Father's Day, right? He would take out his belt and whip him as hard as he could. And this was his upbringing, and he was scared out of his mind of his dad. And was my buddy uh, an obedient child? Yes. But anytime he screwed up, he would get the belt and he would be absolutely devastated, living a life of fear of his dad. And I think in some ways, we can see God as this militant dad who is out to get us, It's only the famine or the three months of enemies coming after us or the three days of pestilence. That's the kind of God we have. But do we also see the God that David sees, that he is actually merciful, that even when there is punishment, there's also mercy. 
right? And, I, and what I think is, I think how we view our Father in heaven is how our life of faith and repentance looks like. If you, got, if you think God is this militant dad who's out to get us and punish us and hurt us, then would we ever come willingly repentant? No. But if we see a God who does have wrath against sin, but also is absolutely merciful, and his mercy is great, as David says here, then we will come like David, not provoked, but one who, out of his own volition and humility, comes and asks for forgiveness and his repentance. And that's what God does here. He begins, because of the consequence of David and the sin of David, the angel comes and strikes 70,000 men. 70,000. And we need to take that to heart. This is no joke. Sin causes devastation. And we looked at that, right? The ecology of sin is great. It ripples down to those things that are both seen and unseen. And here, the consequences of sin is 70,000 of his 1.3 million men are dead. But what happens as the angel comes to strike Jerusalem, God relents. And another word for it is that God grieves. And out of his great mercy that David calls out, God stops the hand of the angel and says, pull back, no more. This is the mercy of God. Even when there is wrath and punishment, there is mercy for his people. And that's what we see here. But what happens, this last part, we have to see David, not only the one that is a sinner, but also repentant. We have to see David, the forgiven. Because where does David, or where does this angel relent and not kill and destroy the rest of Jerusalem? It happens on this threshing floor of this man, Aruna the Jebusite. It's here the wrath stops, at this home of the threshing floor of Aruna. Now David sees this, unbelievable devastation of 70,000 men dead. And here, look at verse 17. What does David say when he sees the devastation because of his own sin? What does he write? He says, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Do you know what David's saying? He's saying they've done nothing. These sheep, these people are innocent. I'm the one who should be experiencing the wrath and punishment and death of God. Take me. Why are you taking all these people? Take me. I deserve it. And what he's saying is, let me be the substitute. Let me be the one who takes the fall because they have done nothing wrong. I'm the one who should pay for my sin. He's the one that should die and not his people. And guess what God does? He stopped his wrath, right? He stops his wrath from killing any more people. But guess what he does? He stops and he tells David to build an altar. He doesn't kill David, but he tells David to build this altar at the threshing floor where the angel had stopped the devastation of this pestilence. And he tells him to build this altar and take oxen and offer the burnt and peace offering before the Lord. And in that way, what God is telling David is that I will stop my wrath, but that wrath still needs to be met. And I will put that wrath upon this altar, this sacrifice 
not of David, but of this oxen. And here, God's wrath is met. And David and the people of God experience the mercy of Yahweh. Mercy and wrath are met here at this altar on this threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So not only is David forgiven for his sin, but the wrath of God that needs to be met is satisfied. Instead of the wrath of God upon David, it's upon this sacrifice. And that's what forgiveness looks like for David. He is forgiven because the wrath of God is placed upon this animal and he experiences the mercy and grace of, his Yahweh, of God, his Father. And at the end of this chapter, what do we read? The plague is averted. That's it. But here's where the hope actually lies. Not only in David being forgiven and the wrath of God appeased upon the altar on this threshing floor. But it's at this place, this threshing floor, that in this exact same spot, the temple of God would be built. Remember, David wanted to build God a temple, right? A house for him to live in. But God is like, I've never asked you to build this temple. We looked at that. But I'm going to establish your house forever. But now in 1 Kings, Solomon, David's son, is going to build this temple right in the same spot where this altar is built and a sacrifice is made and the wrath of God is appeased and David is forgiven. And guess what is so significant about this temple? This is where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals would be slaughtered and sacrificed to appease the wrath of God. For a thousand years, this is where blood would be shed and the mercy of God would be experienced because God's people would be forgiven over and over again for being people who continue to sin over and over and over again. But here at this temple, in this spot where God's mercy was first experienced, God's people for a thousand years would experience God's mercy over and over again with animals' blood shed over and over again. This is the mercy of God, but not just that. It would not be far from that same spot on another hill. David's son, his descendant, Jesus, would suffer and die. Jesus didn't have three options. He only had one. And he would ask his father to take away this cup of wrath because he could not do it. But God, his father, would not relent. He would not relent. Punishment and wrath would be poured out upon Jesus. No mercy would be experienced for his son. Why? So that us, his children, would experience the ever lasting mercy of our Father because of his extravagant love for us. Jesus becomes the ultimate and perfect substitute to appease the wrath and satisfy the wrath of God once and for all, sins past, present, future, forever. That would be satisfied through this one perfect substitute, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's what this threshing floor is so significant. Like the Minari plant, it offers us hope because we know that God's mercy wasn't just once for David, but it's for us every single day we mess up. 
Every single day we screw up, His mercies and His grace are ever and never-ending, everlasting, so that we might be able to rest in what Jesus has done, in what He has done alone, and not in what we do or don't do. How perfect we live our lives or how good of a person we are is because of Jesus. And it's in Him mercy and forgiveness is experienced. Look to Him, the great shepherd of the sheep. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for our great shepherd, the one who would lay down his life, who would take on the full wrath of God so that we might never have to. So Lord, I pray out of the greatness of your mercy, Lord, I pray that we would not only find peace in our own hearts as we live a life of faith and repentance, but that we would be merciful people to others, those that are our enemies, those that, we, those that we disagree with, those that live in our own home. Lord, may we be agents of mercy because of the mercy that we have experienced. Do that good work, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.